University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Before I read the scriptures for the message today, I want to play a little game of word association. You know that game, don't you? You say something, somebody says a word, and you say something back to them that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind. So I'm going to say some of the names of the disciples, and I want you to spit back, the, spit not literally spit back, but to tell me the words that come to mind when I say it. So the first disciple is, and this actually requires input from you, so be ready to speak out loud. Peter. Rock. Anyone else? Three times? Good. All right. How about John? Love? Good. What else? What was it? Brother? Okay. What about Matthew? Tax collector? A number of people said that. Good. Any more? How about Judas? Betrayer. Betrayer. Yeah, that's the one that came up most quickly. And the last one, of course, as you can already see on the slide, Thomas. Doubter. Doubter. (laughs) It was just kind of like a chorus that came up. Doubting Thomas, a resounding doubter came from the group this morning. I want us to focus on Thomas, who I think gets a bad rap in our modern Christian culture. In the Synoptic Gospels, just a reminder of what those are, Matthew, Mark, and Luke take things from the same perspective and take a lot of the same history. They rewrite the story of Jesus' life in different ways, but they come from the same basic perspective, which is what synoptic means, the same view or the same perspective. And then you have John. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is only mentioned really in the lists of the names of the disciples. He's a minor figure there, but John's Gospel, he plays a more important role. He is the skeptic. He's the one who is sarcastic and impetuous, I heard someone describe him. Uh, Jesus is, uh, it's coming towards the end, uh, and Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and they know, Jesus knows, and the disciples know, that there are people there waiting uh, who are angry at him. And so Jesus says, come, we're going to Jerusalem, and Thomas says, well, let's all go so that we can die with him too. Thomas is kind of the skeptic. He's got, always got something sarcastic to say. And Jesus, in the night before, the night that he was betrayed, the night before he died, uh, Jesus is telling them that I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas raises his hand and says, we don't even know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there either. Thomas always questioning, always asking, and of course Jesus replied, I am the way and the truth and the life. But of course the most famous story of Thomas earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas. So that's where we find ourselves in the scriptures this morning. This is a famous painting by Caravaggio of Thomas examining Jesus' wounds. So we're going to read the scriptures this morning. It's from John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 24 and go through the end of this story. Now, just a reminder from where we picked up, um, just that evening of the first day and that Sunday that Jesus was raised from the dead, so Easter Sunday, the disciples were gathered together in a locked room. Jesus appeared there in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He allowed them to examine the wounds that he received on the cross. Um, But there was one person who was not able to be there that evening. For whatever reason, maybe he had a dentist appointment, 
apartment. Maybe he was scared and staying in his own room. I don't know what Thomas was doing, but he wasn't there. And he told them that he wanted to see Jesus too. So this is chapter 20, verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied in his typical way, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound on his side. So, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, place your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Note the translation there is faithless, not doubting. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written, including this last story that John tells, that Jesus is the Messiah, excuse me, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thomas. I had to look up some information on Thomas, St. Thomas in the scriptures. Uh, again, there are not many stories about him, and I, as I mentioned as I came through the nomad class today, I don't want to dig into this too much, but John seems to put Thomas into his gospel kind of as a, a foil to himself, you know, where John was loyal and loving and faithful. Thomas was doubting and always skeptical. Um, I love the way John puts his gospel together, but he puts some characters in there intentionally to make himself look better, I think, sometimes. So Thomas, we hear only about him in John's gospel. And then later we find out only really from church tradition what it was that Thomas does because he doesn't really appear much in the book of Acts. We don't find out in the Bible what Thomas does. We don't have any writings or letters from him like we do from Peter or from Paul. Thomas, the doubter. Thomas is the patron saint, by the way. Uh, most of the saints are, are, have a, a patronage or they are patron saints of certain um, uh, what am I thinking of, professions or certain types of people. He is the patron saint of architects and builders. I didn't know that until I looked at this. And I think he should also be the patron saint of scientists and skeptics because Thomas, just like any good scientist, wanted proof. How many of you have ever doubted God, questioned why things happened the way they did? What were the circumstances of that? Look at Thomas, the disciple. He has been looked down on for centuries because he quote-unquote doubted Jesus, even gaming the nickname Doubting Thomas. And somewhere along the line, we've picked up the idea that what Thomas did was wrong and bad. After all, the Bible does seem pretty clear about doubt in places. In James chapter 1, verse 6, James writes that the man who doubts in his prayer is like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth with the wind. In Mark 11, verses 22 and 24, Jesus tells us to ask God for what we want and ask without doubting. And when we do ask without doubting, anything we ask will be accomplished. Have you ever proven that to be true? Have you ever asked anything without doubting and it happened? 
But look how lenient Jesus seems to be with those who doubt, even with doubting Thomas. Notice that all the disciples that were in that room that first night, they doubted too, because it was the women who were the first one to go to the tombs and find out the tomb that Jesus was not there anymore, that the tomb was empty, and they came back and told the disciples. Now the disciples say, oh great, Jesus is alive. No, what did they do? John and Peter ran, sprinted to the tomb. Of course, John got there first. Remember, John likes to make himself look good. Um, but they had to go there and see the evidence for themselves before they really believed. And then Jesus appeared to them. And what were they doing that evening? Even though they had some kind of evidence that Jesus was alive, were they out telling people? No, they were locked away in the room out of fear for what the Jews would do to them. So Thomas is not asking for anything special. He's not asking for something that the other disciples didn't get. He's asking for exactly what they did. They got to see Jesus when he showed up for the first time, and Jesus showed them his hands, showed them his side, so why can't Thomas see it too? So we say, tisk tisk, Thomas, you should have believed all of your friends, even though you know for a fact that Jesus was absolutely dead three days ago. You watched him come off the cross. Even though very few people in the course of history have ever come back from the dead, you should really blindly believe these people who say that we saw him and believe that it's true. I can't blame Thomas at all. Because you and I can see after the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we can cast judgment back 2,000 years in history. But we weren't there in the garden. We didn't watch Jesus come down from the cross. We didn't watch uh, as he was paraded down the streets of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. And then there's this phrase that Jesus makes that is comforting on first brush for us. And then kind of puzzling. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you ever taken comfort from that fact? I have. Felt like Jesus was speaking directly of me. But what kind of blessing is that to not be able to see and yet still to believe? I think for those of us who live in an age of reasoning and science, you would have to be a little bit off not to doubt the story. As followers of a man who lived 2,000 years ago, we look at all these fantastic claims that we are supposed to believe, not based on any firsthand knowledge on our account, but just some people who wrote it down a few years later. Remember, the Gospels weren't even written down until 20 or 30 years after Jesus died. So we're supposed to take their word for it that these things happen, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was serenaded by angels and announced by a star that appeared in the heavens, that Jesus did all kinds of miracles throughout his ministry, that he won a sparring match with the devil after not eating and drinking for 40 days. He healed people, he walked on water, he fed thousands, he cast out demons, he even raised up a couple of people from the dead, and then we are told that he died and came back to life, that he appeared to several people various times, and then he went up in the sky and said, I'll be back one day. If you have ever doubted any of these stories, even just for a moment, then you are human. Paul called it foolishness for a reason. The story is absolute nonsense unless you choose to look at it through the eyes of faith. Thomas is not alone in his doubt, and he was not alone that week in his doubt. At least he was sincere about what he felt and thought, even if he was a little bit stubborn. And Jesus was graceful to him and to the disciples. He knew that the disciples had doubts, so he showed them his hands and his side. In the other Gospels, we read that Jesus sat down and ate a meal with them, which is something a ghost would not be able to do. Thomas had doubts, and Jesus knew that, but he didn't say, now, Thomas, aren't you ashamed of yourself for doubting me? He didn't say that. What does he do? He appears just as he did before. Peace be with you. Come look at my hands and my side and see that it's really, 
really me? So is doubt really this awful thing that we've made it out to be? Questioning what we see or don't see, what we understand, the being blessed, even though we haven't seen Jesus face to face. It seems to me that if doubt was such an awful thing, that Jesus was very merciful to Thomas, who had just committed such an awful sin. Maybe doubt really isn't the awful thing that we make it out to be. Now, talking about doubt is difficult because of, for evangelical Protestants especially, I think I know why. It's because of this atmosphere that we've created around faith and belief. Now, we've been taught and regularly had it reinforced, at least I was growing up, that salvation comes through faith alone. We hear this in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We've been told and turned the word faith into belief, and by belief we mean this, that it's despite all of our better judgment, despite everything in our senses and all we learned in school telling us that this should be hard to believe, we're decided that Jesus was the Son of God, that he did all of these things that the Bible says, and he raised up from the dead. It is a decision, it is a will, something that we do in our mind, that we have to absolutely believe certain things in order to be saved. And this decision, this leap of faith that takes completely, place completely in our minds, this is salvation, we are told, and nothing else. Now, we've given it all other kinds of names that I gave my life to Jesus, or maybe uh, we borrow this image from Revelation of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, which, by the way, had nothing to do with personal salvation, but we use it to talk about, I accepted Jesus into my heart, or Jesus came into my life. But here's the main idea. Faith is something we do up here in this mindset, not something we do with our lives, because salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, Paul says, lest any person would boast. And it's a free gift. It's absolutely simple. You just have to read this tract and you'll understand everything. You just have to pray this one prayer and you'll be saved. You just have to be really sorry for your sins and then you'll have it. It's really the easiest thing in the world. If you go back over all I just said in the last minute, you'd understand that really isn't easy at all. All kinds of problems inherit in this view of salvation. And I'm not going to get on my soapbox about salvation this morning and the way that atonement happens, but we've still made a work out of it. It's not by works lest anyone should boast, but in order to be saved, you just have to do this and this and this. Do you understand the paradox there? It clashes. My point is this, in this kind of atmosphere that we've created as evangelical Christians, where belief is everything, the worst thing that you can imagine that you can do is to doubt, to question God, to wonder whether the gospel accounts or any of the other things that happen in the Bible, for that matter, are accurate, to have second thoughts about God's goodness in light of all the evil things that we see going on in the world around us. These seem dangerously close to not believing and to having doubt. So we've been taught, or at least we've told ourselves sometimes, that asking questions is a sin. But the Bible does not bear this out. So let's look at some case studies real quick of other places where we see that doubting and asking questions are really not that bad of a thing. How about the story of Job in the Bible? It makes us very uncomfortable. This man on whom God allowed all kinds of calamities to fall, we won't even talk about how that idea makes us uncomfortable. I think a lot of people have read Job or heard about Job, but never really read it all the way through. So we've contented ourselves with these pithy ideas about Job. Somebody has the patience of Job, we say. If you read through Job, he was not patient. He was angry. 
he wanted answers. He wanted to understand why these things were happening. His wife told him to curse God and die, and he refused, but he came about as close as you could get. He didn't hold anything back in his relationship with God. He accused God of being his enemy, of hating him, of mocking him, of besieging him with the intent to kill him. He wishes that he had never been born, and he wonders why God created him just to be a punching bag. And he rants and says that no matter what anyone else might say, that God is unfair, and he calls the heavens and the earth to witness that God has wronged him. And all the while, Job's friends are trying to convince him that he has sinned. He's the one who has done this. He brought all of it on himself, and that he's the wrong one to talk about God in this way. And at the end of the book, if you get there and read it, you might not know what to expect. You might think that God's going to come out and, and unveil everything that's been happening behind the scenes. Maybe God will come out and finish Job off and strike him down with lightning for doubting. Maybe God will give everyone a little theology lesson in divine motivation and good versus evil. Maybe God is going to reward these three friends who have been keeping on telling Job time and time again, you need to stop talking like this. This is not good. But what really happens is surprising. First, God answers Job basically by saying, I am wise enough and powerful enough to have created everything in the universe. Do you really think you would understand if I told you why things happened? And then he says to Job's friends, God says, My anger is stirred up against you because you have not spoken about me what is right and true, as my servant Job has. Do you catch that? Who's been saying the right things about God? Who's been talking about God the right way? Job has. Didn't he just get onto Job for asking too many questions? What about all this stuff about, that Job said about God being unfair and unjust? How could God just cover over all that stuff? It seems to fly in the face of what we've been taught about questioning as being the ultimate sin. Now, what about other cases in the Bible like Moses and his constant arguing or bickering with God? Or what about Elijah who accused God of ruining his life and asked God to strike him dead? What about Jacob, who both literally and figuratively wrestled with God his entire life? What about Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane went down on his hands and knees and said, do I really have to do this? All of these people display a relationship with God in which it is okay to ask questions. It's okay to doubt. As Job's story points out, we don't understand what God is doing most of the time, and it's natural to have questions about that. How many people have ever asked God why in a time of crisis? How many people have ever wondered about all the miraculous events that don't seem to make sense in the world that we see around us today? To me, this is where faith takes over. Not blind faith that says, I'm just going to ignore all this other stuff and pretend I don't have questions. It's a faith that says, I don't understand, but I'm going to act on what I believe to be true. I don't understand why Jesus asked me to love the people who hate me, but I'm going to try. I don't understand how God could have raised Jesus from the dead, and I'm never going to have historical proof, but I'm going to try to act as if it is true. Because faith is not something that happens up here. Faith is something that we do with our lives. It comes down to Greek words, and I know you all probably hate it when, we, when pastors come up here and you're like, oh, this Greek word means this. If you really understood it, you would understand everything. Well, I'm going to do that. Sorry. Um, the word for doubt in the New Testament is diakrino. It is a very rare word, the actual word that we translate into doubt, and it means to discern or to judge or to hesitate when making a decision. It's really only used twice in, this, in the New Testament in reference to how we act towards God by James, as we mentioned above, and by Jesus talking about how we pray. 
pray. But this is not the word that is used in the story of Thomas. And it's why I pointed out when we read the translation before that Jesus didn't say stop doubting and believe. He said stop being faithless or stop, being, stop unfaithing and believe. Because in Greek there is a word actually to faith and to unfaith. And we translate it to believe because we don't have a word that means like, hey, do you faith Jesus? Well, yes, I do faith Jesus. Um, we don't use that word. Thomas was blessed because he saw and had faith. And then there's us 2,000 years later, and we are blessed because we did not say, see, and yet we do have faith. Because in the New Testament, the word to believe and to have faith, as we translate it in the New Testament, as we translate it in English, are the same word. It's pistuo, uh, that someone has always, you basically always see it as believing or trusting in the New Testament when we see the, the uh, translations of it. Now, the opposite of believing or faithing is apistia, unfaith or unbelief. Between doubt and apistia, apistia, this unfaithing is the more dangerous thing that we see in the scriptures. Like I mentioned, the word doubt is only mentioned in a couple of times, but in other places in the Gospels, we see that unfaithing is very dangerous. Jesus came into certain places, the, the Gospels say, and he could not do miracles there because the people unfaithed. They did not believe. It wasn't just a mental thing. It was partially mental, but they could not commit themselves to this idea that Jesus was doing something different in their midst, and Jesus could not do anything for them. Apistia, unfaithing, is the reason that when the disciples, you remember the story Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs into the world and they did things and they came back and said, we did all kinds of things but we couldn't cast out demons in your name for some reason. And Jesus said, it's because you are unfaithing. You didn't believe. You did not commit yourself to this belief and this idea that it could actually happen. We need to recapture this idea, I think, of what the Greek faith uses, Greek language uses for faith, because to trust something despite our reservations, to trust and to act upon our trust, it's how James can say things like faith without works is meaningless. We have made a distinction between having faith in God, believing, and acting on faith, but the Bible, there is no distinction between these two things. If you believe this to be true, then you will live in a way that shows that it is true. It's not just knowing the right facts, it's acting on what we believe to be true. Just a little experiment. Put your hands down on the seat beside you. Did you examine that seat before you sat down this morning? Did you get down on your hands and knees and look under it to make sure all the screws were in the right place, that there weren't any cracks in the wood? How did you know you were gonna, it was going to hold you up? Maybe you sit on that pew very often and you know that it's held you up in the past, so you believe that it would today. But when you sat down on that pew without having full understanding of the mechanics and getting out your slide rule and making sure that the, the uprights are placed in the right proportional position to hold the weight of the people on that pew, without knowing all that stuff, you put faith on that seat and put your bottom on it this morning, and there you sit, and it's holding you up. That is the difference between, the, or not the, 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 the non-distinction that I'm talking about, how you can't divide faith and action. You believe that that seat's going to hold you up, and so you sat down on it. Now, the opposite is unfaithing and unbelief and all the things that come along with that. If you were always afraid that a chair was not going to hold you up, I mean, maybe a chair broke under you one time, and then you have this fear that it's going to happen to you again, then you're not faithing those chairs. You're going to examine every one to make sure it's going to hold you up. This is, in, in terms of what we talk about 
about in Christianity. It is a refusal to act on what God has called us to do. And these things are much more dangerous than just asking questions. I look at it like the story of the two brothers who were asked by their father to work in the field. It's a parable that Jesus tells. One of them said no, but he ended up going anyway. And one of them said yes, and then he went off and found something else to do. And Jesus said, which one was obedient? And of course, it's the one who actually went and did it. And Thomas is our primary case study in what it means to faith, to be faithful. How did he end up? Well, church tradition has him traveling not long after the, the breakup of the disciples in Jerusalem, traveling toward India to spread the good news. And if you believe there's a group called the Soldiers of Thomas who basically follow uh, Thomas, the churches that Thomas planted in all these places, you can kind of see on the map there the many places that he was believed to have visited. There's even rumors that he visited China and that he visited as far as Indonesia, that he kept going and going and going until he died. He planted churches everywhere he went. He really faced Jesus. He believed enough in this to go out and tell other people about it and to say, this is good news that I've got to share with you. Now, we can believe all we want with our brains. We can learn the multiplication tables of Christianity and have everything down pat. You can be as solid as a rock theologically, but if you believe these things and you do not act on them and allow God to change your life, when God has called us to share his gospel, when God has called us to care for the poor and the least of these, when God has called us to walk closer and more deeply in our faith in Jesus, then that, when we don't do that, that is much more dangerous than just asking questions. That's flat out unfaithing. And if we look at the Bible stories, we find that unfaith is the most dangerous place that we can be. I think the most crucial difference between doubt and unfaith is that if we understand it, we see it in the stories where it, unfaith is mentioned. As followers of Christ, we enter into a relationship with God, not just a king-servant relationship, but a friend-friend relationship. God is the one true almighty God. God is the omnipotent almighty creator. God's ways are higher than our ways, but for some reason, God decided to stoop down and become one of us. And when God does, he says, now I call you my friends. When we decide to faith God, to decide to hold on to God and to act as if God's word and promises are true, we enter into a relationship of loyalty with God. And that means we're holding on to that relationship even when we don't understand what the other party is up to. And that loyalty, I think, is the key to the relationship, not to this construct or this idea that we have of who God might be, not loyalty to just a book that has some words printed in it, but loyalty to God. It's a loyalty that says, I don't understand why you're asking me to do this, and I'd love for you to explain, but even if you don't, I'm going to do it anyway because you have asked me to. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had when he, God asked him to leave his home behind and later to sacrifice his own son. That's the kind of faith that Jacob showed when he wrestled with God. It's the kind of faith that Moses showed when he took the people out of Egypt. It's the kind of faith that Job showed. Notice the main difference between uh, Job and his friends there. Even though Job was angry, hurt, and confused, he directed those feelings towards God and not towards his friends. Job may have said some things about that God that were not true, but he didn't go talking about his friend to God behind God's back. He was loyal to this relationship, and he never let go. That is faith, never letting go. Like Jacob who wrestled with God until his, his hip was out of joint, but he would not let this other man go until he blessed him, and then he realized he had been wrestling with God the whole time. So we have good news 
and bad news and good news again. The good news is that the questions that we have are okay. We've seen them from a few biblical characters. We could find dozens more questions and doubts are okay as long as we aim them at the source and hold fast to the relationship. The bad news is that we are probably all guilty of unfaithing sometimes. When we allow our doubts, our questions, our busy lives to pull us away from a relationship with God that really transforms us and helps us to transform the world. This was the very situation that Thomas and the disciples found themselves in because you notice eight days later, where were the disciples again when Thomas showed up? They were locked together up in that room. They still, even though they had seen Jesus, even though they had the evidence, they were still locked up in their fear. Like them, we have a tendency to wander from the relationship and allow our doubts and our fears and our feelings to draw us away. We have a tendency to pretend that faith is something we just do up here when really we're actually too fearful to act on what God calls us to do. But there's good news, bad news, and then good news again, that even in the midst of their unfaith, Jesus came to those disciples again, and there he was in the midst. Peace be with you, he said, just as he is with us. So may our prayer this morning and each day be the same prayer of the man that came to Jesus and wanted Jesus to heal his daughter. He says, I believe. Help me in my unfaith. So I want to finish with a kind of an imaginative prayer experience this morning. Uh, you can close your eyes if it's not going to put you to sleep. Otherwise, focus on something else. I want you to imagine that you are there in the room, locked away with the other disciples that night. You are afraid. You are uncertain. You do not understand what has been happening. And there, without a knock on the door, without an open window, suddenly Jesus is there. And Jesus says, peace be with you. What does that peace look for you like? Look like for you right now? What peace does Jesus offer you today? But Jesus didn't finish there. The next thing he says, according to John, is, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As you're there in the room, ask Jesus, What is it that you want me to do? And listen to the response. Jesus, we thank you for coming into the room with us, wherever we are locked away, wherever we are questioning and wondering why things are happening the way they are, whatever is going on in our lives that keeps us from living the life 
that you have called us to, a life that seeks to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that seeks to love ourselves deeply and to love others deeply, just as you do. Jesus, we believe that sometimes we have trouble faithing. I pray for each of us that whatever you are calling us to do, a different relationship that we might need to develop, a, a fixing a broken relationship, making up for something that we might have done wrong to somebody else, to go and talk to somebody, to show love to the people around us each day, whatever it is that you are calling us to do, give us the faith to act on what you've shown us, to live out what we believe in our hearts and in our minds. And so we know that you will be with us the whole way, saying peace be with you. Amen.